Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Today on the program, another Craftwork episode. My guest is Declan Mead, founding editor and publisher of The Stinging Fly, one of the world's premier literary magazines based in Dublin, Ireland. You might have read about Declan Mead and The Stinging Fly in the New York Times back in April in a feature story by Max Uffberg. The Stinging Fly was founded in 1997 by Declan and Aoife Cavanaugh the first issue appearing in March of 1998. It publishes twice annually and works to give new and emerging writers an opportunity to get their work out into the world with a special emphasis on the short story form. The Stinging Fly is now celebrating 25 years of existence and through the decades, it has featured some of the best new writing from Ireland and from around the world developing a reputation as one of the most expertly curated literary magazines in existence, offering an eclectic mix of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Declan Mead about the work that he does day-to-day, running and maintaining one of the world's most vital literary magazines. And the hope here is that some of you out there listening will be inspired to start a literary magazine of your own. Since its founding, The Stinging Fly has evolved and expanded beyond the bounds of a literary magazine. It is now, in addition, a book publisher, an education provider, 
and an online platform. And we're going to hear about all of it right now. So let's get to today's conversation with Declan Mead, founding editor and publisher of The Stinging Fly. Well, I had moved to Dublin in 1995, and up to that point, I hadn't lived in the city at all. And I was coming to the city having grown up 40 miles away (laughs) and then going to college in the north of Ireland and then traveling to the traveling around Europe for a short while after I graduated and then ending up in working in a bookstore in Atlanta, Georgia for the best part of a year. And what, uh, which bookstore? It was called Oxford books. And it's like, while I was there was 1994, 1995. And it was just at that time, Atlanta was getting ready for the Olympics in 1996, but also the city was experienced like the, Barnes and Noble was spreading throughout the land of America, <laughs> and was moving had moved into the into Atlanta while I was there. Borders also moved in. Where I worked was an independent bookstore, an amazing bookstore, family owned. So I worked there for a year, but I wanted to. I hadn't lived up in Dublin up to that point, so I kind of felt I have to go and try living in Dublin before I decide what else I'm going to do with my life. But I'd say that during that time, during those travels after I graduated, I was kind of looking for a purpose and what I was going to do with my life, basically. It wasn't clear to me in any way. Uh, but I was interested in, I'd always been interested in reading and I'd always, and I always liked the idea of writing myself. And so I came to Dublin and I ended up getting a job through a government kind of employment scheme with the James Joyce Centre in Dublin. And it was... So I worked there. I actually did. I'd studied business, so I, I ended up doing their doing their accounts in the beginning, and then I became the administrator of the center. And uh, I worked there for nearly two years, I think. And but I was a bit, you know, restless. But wh- while I was in there, I uh, did a couple a couple of writing workshops at the Irish Writers Center, which is still running, and then I joined a couple of writing groups and I was trying to write short stories and I met quite a few people who were in the same situation as I was who were trying to get started writing you know they were they were writing and they were hoping to get their work out into the world and they were hoping to make some kind of a life in writing and when we'd sit around uh, often in a pub but uh, not always we would talk about you know, opportunities to get published. And there was, a, I'd say, a general air of despondency around the idea of getting published and how difficult it was. And just, there didn't seem, like people, you know, it seemed to be a real stumbling block for people. I and mean, like people were hitting a brick wall in terms of, you know, the, the, that opportunity. And, it, and I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know very much about literary magazines. You know, I hadn't experienced them growing up or... They weren't on my radar anyway. And I think it was just a very, it was a fallow period in the kind of history of literary magazines in Dublin. But all I could see, or all we could see, the the group of people who were kind of, I was hanging out with and who were all trying to write and get, you know, make that start. All they could see was this void, 
myself and my friend Aoife Kavanagh, she was working with me in the James Joyce Centre and she'd come out of having studied English and philosophy at, uh, in Dublin, was from Dublin, uh, but had gone to Galway in the west of Ireland and did a master's in publishing over there, literature and publishing. So she was keen to uh, investigate the you know possibilities of, of having a career in publishing at that point. So we would talk about you know both where we were both coming from in this in this respect, and I think at some point we decided that we were going to set up a magazine, and we were, and really what we wanted to do was, you know, get people to send us work, submit work to us, uh, we'd read it, we'd decide if it was if we were excited by the work, and if we were depending on how excited we were with, by the work, we'd do an issue, uh, we put put out a magazine. And we didn't know very much about how to go about doing that, other than putting out that initial call. The poems and the stories started to come in. Uh, Wait, can I can I stop you for a second? Sure. Like a question I have is like, where did you put the call out? Was this just online? And uh, no, well, online didn't exist then. <laughs> this was. I was going to say. Uh, so it, did, it certainly didn't exist for me, uh, really. I would say, like, I think I probably set up an email address fairly soon after that, but. Um, uh, no, so actually we got a note, we got, we wrote, we got a notice into some of the papers, but there was also the Irish Writers' Centre that I just mentioned were running the courses, so they had a newsletter, so we got it into their newsletter. There was Poetry Ireland, was so they put it in their newsletter. Uh, it was all, you know, these were print newsletters that went out to people, you know, in the, in the real world, uh, <laughs> you know, real format. And we did get a mention in the Irish Times, uh, you know, for the submission call. And there was a kind of snarky mention, if you if you understand snarky, as in, you know, they, they were saying, I think we put in that people didn't have to pay a submission fee. And the person, the, the person who put together this literary column of, of literary news kind of said, well, I should hope not. <laughs> why, why would people pay for this, for the privilege of their work being read? But, you know, we were very green and didn't know what we were doing, essentially. But, you know, we, we definitely got enough work that we were excited about. And we decided that we do. We, we, we publish a magazine and we, we, we scraped the money together to publish that. And we got a printer who was willing to wait until after a while after we he'd printed the magazine to, to get payments so that we were able to sell copies and then pay pay off the bill. We did sell some advertising in that first issue, which was an horrendous experience of trying to sell ads, um, you know, which I hated. But yeah, we, we got it done. And Aoife and I worked on it. We decided we'd do a second issue because, you know, we'd enjoyed doing the first one. We had a launch for the first issue in the, in the Irish Writers' Centre. And the day, like... We had a plan for a Friday evening and the print, the, the magazine arrived from the printers that afternoon, like very late, but it made it on time. And, you know, the, just the excitement of all that. And I, I was, I had just turned 27 at that point, you know, but yeah, I just enjoyed every aspect of it. And I wanted to keep it going. Aoife worked on the second issue with me. We did that together. And then at that point, she was kind of figuring out what she wanted to do next. And she decided that she was going to become a teacher. So that's what she went off to teacher training college. At that point, she was probably a few years younger than me. And so, but I wanted to keep going. And I guess I, I just, I, by this point, 
pretty much I had discovered that this is something I love doing. And it was a way for me to to be engaged, involved with the literature world, the world of writing, without having the pain of writing myself, you know, <laughs> which I kept, I mean, I continued trying to do for the next four or five years. So the next four or five years, I was working on the magazine part-time. I was, I was doing other jobs part-time to bring in actual money for myself. And I was trying to write stories as well. But then in 2004, after I'd been doing it for six years, I took a bit of a break. So the magazine kind of stopped for the best part of a year. And while I was trying to figure out what would happen next for me, and what I decided to do at that point was that I would keep going, that I would come, I would give up the other things that I was doing, and I would go at this full time, even though there, there wasn't the funding there. So I was going to commit fully to doing this because it had been frustrating to me to kind of do it in that part time way, and to be only part, you know, and to have the other commitments that were taking up more of my time, but that were funding everything else but so I moved down to where I'd grown up and my brother had a house down there again 40 miles outside Dublin in the countryside so I lived there for two years my brother was still was living in London so this house was available to me and that's where I and as well as deciding to do this full time that's when I also decided that we were going to start publishing books alongside the magazine which we started doing in 2005 as well so in 2005 may 2005 i would have come back with a kind of a new slightly new format of the mag for the magazine and this new publishing imprint as well hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. So in terms of just logistics, because yeah. there are probably people listening who might have an interest or at least some inkling of an interest in starting their own literary magazine. Yeah. In terms of what you needed to know, because you started out and you said you were very green, you were just sort of an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And you and Aoife were kind of just winging it. Yeah. But 
you know, it's one thing to find a printer who can print what you've done, but you also, you have to do the layout. You have to be able to do the graphic mm. design. You have to be able yeah. to do the mm. cover. Or, is that a skill set that you possess? Not at the time. <laughs> but, uh, and so the cover we've always had help with, but I did learn how to do layout. And I remember again with the very first issue, Aoife had arranged for us to go and meet with a publisher who was quite old school. And, you know, and a lot of this, so much of this is, is pre-digital anyway. So we're doing the first issue at the start of 1998. But um, I remember going to this publisher's office and she was, she had to sit down with a pair of scissors and uh, some, you know, pieces of paper and you know how do we want the magazine to look and you know we'd we'd stick that's what she wanted us to do and I, I but there was a computer over on her desk and I was saying can we not use the computer please <laughs> ultimately we need to get this on the computer <laughs> but no she wanted us to play with the scissors and so I, I had to leave that meeting because I am a very very practical person basically <laughs> I you know I need I need to see things happen and get get them done and we didn't have the software to do the layout but you know we were at one point another point we were in another publisher's office like towards midnight kind of borrowing the, their computer to to get the layout done of the first issue wow but yeah so there, there, there literally was nothing and then yeah but so all of that is kind of like we've had it's now 25 years on the go so we yeah it's been a build-up of resources over time <laughs> and and i'm sure like the I'm sure that the layout and the design of the magazine has obviously changed and evolved as you've gotten sure more resourced and more sophisticated, right? Yeah. I mean, the first issue would have been A4 and about 24 pages, I think 24, 28 pages. Uh, and the current edition is 240 pages and a bit different. <laughs> Diff- different size too? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, sorry, this is the most, the summer twenty. 23 edition which is just out now and how many uh you do it seasonally like quarterly we're doing it uh we just do two a year now so originally we were doing three a year so that was another thing that changed in 2017 so we we switched it so we started doing we moved from the a4 in 2005 to doing three that were kind of that size but thinner three of those about 120 pages each and then in 2017, I think 2017, we decided that we do, we double the size of an issue, but we do two of them instead of three. And when you say A4, that's in reference to the to the layout size. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So just a yeah. So that's our standard letter size here, but yeah, it's like different in the US. Oh, got it. Okay. And then, what about you know just basic nuts and bolts uh, nuts and bolts processing of material especially as the magazine has grown larger and more successful and more known within the literary community in ireland you yeah. must have I was back, sorry i was looking back at a, an old notebook that i had from from 1997 so the very first issue and i was i made a note in this notebook of the submissions that came in and submissions were arriving into our p.o box and I'd go along to the post office and pick them up every week and then come home and log them in this little green notebook. And, you know, but there were, for that first issue, we had 76 submissions come in. And we're, op- yeah, at the last issue that we, full submission window that we had, 
for that issue there, the summer issue, that's we got 2,900 submissions for that all online. So that's by submittable. But, yeah. What about like percentage wise in terms of what you what you receive versus what you actually publish? Do you have like a ratio that's pretty standard? Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's a grim number or something like it's one one to two percent yeah one yeah one to two percent chance yeah. of getting published in the Stinging yeah. Fly based on the volume of submissions that you receive yeah and in terms of and in, in it's I mean this is what an editor does right your the magazine reflects your sensibility and your taste to a degree uh, I'm sure there are other editors involved as well but. Yeah. Is there something like for people listening who are, are writers who might be thinking of submitting to you, is there something that you can point to that distinguishes work that you guys tend to gravitate toward or is it just excitement? You just read it and for some reason you respond to it and each yeah, one is different. Is pretty much that. I mean, so now I've, I've moved off like from editing the magazine for the last four or five years uh, and we've had a, a, a series of editors come through. Uh, so it was just kind of, like as the organization kind of grew and, and we started doing more and more things, it just became too much for me to do. So I think the first time I handed over the editing completely was in 2014, which is nine years ago. And then um, we've had a, a series of editors. I had to step back in at one point for a, a year or so. But um, yeah, it's somebody else now doing the choosing, but we'd have a panel of readers and contributing editors who read some of the submissions as well. I mean, because one person can't get through all of that work. Although, like when a new editor comes in, they tend to say, okay, give, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try and read everything. But I think after they do that once, <laughs> you know, they realize, okay, well, who else can help us here? But I, I think... You know, so, and when I was editing, it was the same. Like you're, you're reading each piece individually, and you're, you're, you're trying to assess what the writer is trying to do with this piece of work, and and you're giving it as as fair a shot as you can, and you want, you know, you want to find good work, and the, you know, and the easiest thing in the world is to read something that's that just completely speaks to you, and you know that you relate to, and you know. And you, you, you want other people to read this and you want other people to have the same experience that you've had reading it. And that's, that's, that's wonderfully exciting, you know, uh, and clear, kind of a clear pathway. But then not every, you're not going to love every piece that you read by any means. And then you're, you have to ask, well, what is this writer trying to do? This doesn't appeal to me necessarily, but what are they trying to, like if what they're trying to do is, if they've achieved what they've set out to do and it's, to all intents and purposes, a kind of, you know, an achieved piece of work that 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 people will read. I mean, I, like even from very early on in the magazine's history, I remember publishing an issue, and people would come up to me afterwards and they'd say that they loved this or that piece, and and very you know, it was always a different piece, and it was always it was very often not a piece that I would have loved, but it was always affirmation to hear that because it meant yes, this this hit home with somebody. And I hope that it would because, you know, I felt that the writer was doing something interesting and was and it was deserving of being published, you know. Okay, yeah, because I was going to say about having a group of people evaluating submissions, everybody's taste is obviously different. There have to be situations where there might be somebody who's read who really responds to something, but you don't quite respond to it. Yeah. 
like does there have to be consensus or do you allow for different editors to get to kind of assert their taste on the magazines you know what i'm saying yeah i mean the the editor in each uh, like the overall editor of, of the magazine so whoever, whoever is the person at the top at the, at the at the time so currently it's lisa mcinerney so she would have the ultimate say so the contributing editors would feed work to her that they say you know this is worth your time reading and but she would make the ultimate call but i suppose with that le- you know the fact that we have more more people involved now it allows us to perhaps give better feedback than we were able to do before i mean i remember again going back to my days of editing the magazine that like we would have i would have a clear kind of yes pile which would be yes i'm excited to publish this or uh, yes uh, this person this piece of work you know i feel confident that some readers will enjoy this you know and we we want the magazine to be reflective of what the different types of writing that people are doing at any one time but then i'd have a no pile which was quite large and it would be generally i think people kind of I mean, the most common mistake, I suppose, is, is people submitting work before it's ready because, you know, people love or people need to have deadlines to get work done. And they see our deadline coming up and they say, yeah, I'm going to go for it. Now's the chance. And, you know, and they probably haven't spent as much time with the work as they should have, uh, but they get it in. And there's a feeling of accomplishment of getting the piece submitted. And when you're starting out as a writer, that that's an important part of the process as well, I suppose, just, you know, learning how to, you know, hit deadlines and get work done and get work in. But oftentimes that work is perhaps not ready and will benefit from being reworked over time. And that's where the, you know, us being able to maybe send out more kind of qualitative rejection letters is helpful. Uh, and also, I suppose, and the other thing I wanted to mention was the fact that, you know, certainly in the early day, there was a, always a significant maybe pile as well. And that was kind of writing that was, I mean, that could be writing that was accomplished, but not quite there yet. Or there was some kind of tricky issue with it. And one of our responses to that was to start doing workshops where we kind of would give people the opportunity to you know, share their work with one another and kind of and and work with a more established writer to kind of hopefully iron out some of the issues that was with that they had with the work. But yeah, we've certainly had people who've sent work to us for a number of years before they got published with us. And that's another part of the process as well. And I think it's something that distinguishes literary magazines let's say that's an important kind of role that literary magazines play it's like kind of no fault or no judgment kind of rejections of you know yeah submit submit to us again like we've all we always our standard response is always said to submit work again because you just never know when something is going to you know or when for a writer there's going to be a breakthrough and the work will reach a different level yeah yeah i I relate to that just uh i was a teacher of creative writing at you know college level for a few years and one of the things that i hated was giving grades yeah. <laughs> uh, just because i feel like well these are young writers who are just starting out and you'd really never know how somebody's going to develop and you don't want to discourage somebody who would otherwise go on to do great things i guess sure. you don't want to i mean there, there's also maybe a 
more cynical take where you don't want to encourage people <laughs> who yeah. should do something else. But I don't know. I felt like you need to kind of give people space to make their mistakes and to kind of yeah. develop and maybe nudge them in the right direction if you can. But otherwise, it's a very individual process. And yeah. I think for people who might be interested in submitting, first of all, uh, is it limited only to Irish writers or do you take work from anywhere? No, no, we take international, like from anywhere, everywhere. Yeah. So okay. We have, yeah. Okay. So that's one thing. And then I think a second question that I have related to submission that you could probably speak to well after 25 years is what are some do's and don'ts for literary submission? I'm sure you've gotten all kinds of emails and strange correspondence from writers, you know, when it comes to getting rejected, when it comes to submitting again, when it comes to trying to dialogue with an editor, yeah. what are some do's and don'ts? Um, I think like what I was talking about just now about that rush to get published, uh, which, you know, I think every writer experiences and particularly, I suppose, if, you know, a lot of the writers that come through and this, you know, would be very much true for me as well like in terms of you know i my family don't like weren't great readers um a couple of my sisters read but um you know my parents weren't readers my wider family you know books weren't kind of cherished or <laughs> adored in our house but um you know so i found kind of great um comfort in, in reading and growing up and um uh, but it means, I suppose, like if you're if you're a writer, it can be very isolating as a writer. And then if 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 not if the people around you don't understand what it is you're doing or don't put a lot of value in what you are doing, I suppose the validation comes from from getting published. And you know, and because it also you know, I think as well when you're starting out as a writer and you say that you're that's if you have the you know if you if you manage to say that out loud to people their reaction will always be or will often be you know are you published like people don't understand i don't think people understand the world of writing and, and publishing very well yeah i think i mean obviously like it's just i mean if people aren't are showing clearly that they haven't read the guidelines i mean that's kind of foolish thing to do at this stage because we go to a lot of trouble with the guidelines uh to you know to make them as clear as possible but yeah i think i mean my very convoluted point about you know just i think writers at this stage because like we're we're talking like we're mostly talking about very early stage writers i mean they have to spend some time figuring out what the type of writer is that who they want to be and they can see getting published in a magazine as a kind of a, a very important stepping stone for them and yes and that's true it can it can certainly be that but they also have to you know they also have to to work out how how will they sustain themselves in the work over a long period of time and you know so I, all what i'm really talking about here is is to for people to avoid submitting work before it's too soon and to and maybe magazines you know a magazine might not be for you i mean even not everybody can write a short story and some people like i know novelists here in ireland who didn't write short stories until well after they published their first novel because they just the technique and the craft involved in a short story is completely different 
uh, to writing novels. But then you also find people who are like people will be, you know, putting all of their efforts into writing short stories, even if <laughs> that's not what they should be doing. <laughs> but you know, like we're very happy to read whatever work comes in, and if we see merit in it whatsoever, we you know the dialogue will start with the with the writer, and you know over time we'd hope that we'd be able to publish some of their work. But I think yeah, you have to be like and but then you have to understand as well that you know that can take that can take time for you know for a, for even you know or that there are other magazines like when I again when I was talking earlier I was talking about how there were very few magazines in Ireland when we started out but like at the now in the last 10 years there's been a real kind of growth and flourishing of literary magazines in Ireland and and they're both in print and online you know like 15 years ago 15 20 years ago people were saying that print was over whereas if that's not the case, I mean, print seems like certainly in Ireland, print is flourishing again. So the outlets are there. There's plenty of places. There's so there. That means there are plenty of editors. So like the Sting and Fly may or may not be for you. So again, it's like kind of, you know, as much as possible finding out, like reading the work that's that that a magazine publishes and knowing what it is that an editor likes. But but I'm not in any way saying that you that that should make you change what you write because the most exciting thing for us is to get something that feels like that no other person in the world could have written this except for this author so those are the writers that we are looking for the people who 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 are writing what they want to write come what may and you know it's up to us to recognize the value in that but that's the work that that is going to surprise us and challenge us and that we will want to share it readers because it will surprise and challenge them too, hopefully. And what about the quality of submissions as the magazine has grown and evolved? You said, I think you had like 79 submissions or whatever it was for that first edition in your PO box. And then now yeah. you're getting close to 3000 or whatever it is. And yeah. I'm wondering about like how the quality of the work that you receive has or has not changed through the years. Um, I think it has, I think it has changed. I mean, I think it has, I think it has generally gone up, I would say. I mean, like another, like another thing that has changed in Ireland, and I think changed to a large degree, you know, internationally as well, is, is, is how a writer is made and how a writer, or how a writer's career is made and how, how a writer's career can progress like so when we set up it, that same year of 97 1998 i think was the first year of the first ever master's program in creative writing in ireland so and which was run by trinity college and now nearly all of the universities in in ireland have their own creative writing departments or courses or a master's program and and some of them have you know that at undergraduate level as well so yeah so that's changed completely as in and so so therefore for more people write creative writing is an option and so they are looking they're they're looking for how to you know how to 
progress in in this you know it, what the opportunities they are are there for them and one of those opportunities are obviously or one of the pathways for them is to start publishing in literary magazines and so i'd say there's a whole different approach to writing now uh, than there was 25 years ago in ireland for sure and probably in other places and we also run our own workshop program as well but yeah so like i think so I don't think it's impacted on the type of story that's been written or the type of work that's been produced. Like I, but I do just think that there's more work. And then if people, if there were, and there, there are more people who've had the experience of sharing their work with peers and, um, you know, taking in feedback. And so I, that has to lead to a more polished kind of submissions for us. And what about the purpose of literary magazines? Because, you know, you guys have a relatively small subscriber base or a very small, depending on how, what you're comparing it to, but how many people subscribe about a thousand? Yeah, it actually went up a little bit recently, but yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's about 1250 or so. Yeah. Yeah. So the, but it's an interesting point because the influence that your magazine has on Irish literary culture and on international literary culture is outsized by comparison. And I think it's useful to underline that because you can have a big impact without having, you know, these huge numbers that I think people normally associate with huge impact. So like, I'm just curious to hear you talk about the purpose of a literary magazine and the function that it serves for writers and readers within maybe the broader political ecosystem. I think I mean one of the main things is is providing community, you know, uh, to to writers at any one time in any one place. I mean, I think, and that's it's kind of essential to to how we have endured, I think, and how like the the place we've kind of staked for ourselves here in in Ireland uh, is that you know we've we've had launches for each issue as a comes out and that means bringing together now in these the even in that first issue there were probably 20 writers in in the issue and now in but and the fiction we were publishing then was like very short it was less than 2000 words or something like that you know whereas now there's typically between around 40 45 in each issue now and we we bring them together so we'll have a launch and we had one last Saturday night here in Dublin you know, where people get to read, some of the contributors get to read, but they all get to meet whoever can make it to that launch. But we've also started doing Zoom events for, for the contributors of each issue as it comes out, kind of happened during the pandemic that we had to do those, but now we've kind of kept, kept them going. Just again, as a way of all of the contributors in, in the magazine coming together for a few hours and just talking a little bit about their work and you know, and I think that's and there'll be writers in an issue that have been writing for twenty five years or thirty years. There'll be writers who just started in the last two years, but they all get a chance to hear from each other and about each other's work. So I, you know, that's so such a crucial part of what a literary magazine is and does. That kind of giving you know like again i was talking about the validation that we are you know, like the, the the early 
stage writer is 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 desperately looking for and that sense of community you know from people people who will understand what it is to try to want to be a writer you know will understand their ambition will understand or will want to talk about books with them you know it's like so so all of that is becomes available i think or can be made available to our contributors by our you know the interest that we take as a, like it's now a team of people working on the magazine with me like we spend a lot of time trying to figure out like how do we how do we best encourage writers and how do we make things easier how do we reduce barriers for people you know how, like what supports can we extra supports could we put in place that and opportunities can we make available for writers that will help them kind of through that very kind of difficult path of you know starting out as a writer we did a couple of zoom events in the last last year i think it was where it was and we build them for for writers for people who just wanted to get started as writers and they could sign up for free and just come and talk and a gr- we had a group of writers who were going to share their experiences of starting out and but what we noticed in the audience for those events which we had probably about a couple of hundred people at at the two events was that people signed up for them who we'd already published and then people who were like but also people who just started out and people like people who'd already made some kind of progress because that thing of starting out as a writer that that period of time it's 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 a it could, could be quite long <laughs> you know as a, you know and there are people at very different stages within that but they would all you know but most of them would still be waiting you know working towards their first book but that could be anything from you know 2 to 15 years in for a person that their first book comes out so i think you know so a literary magazine if like one of the things i used to say to myself in the, in the very early days when it was just me working on the magazine for a long period of time it was just me the, I would say, I would say, what can a literary magazine do? And I, partly, I was just, you know, say, well, a literary magazine can do all kinds of things, you know. So like, there's no, you know, but as in, there's no. I shouldn't limit what, what we set out to do because you know, if there's a need for something to be done, a lot of what we've we've developed over time is is kind of, you know, through talking to writers, listening to writers, most of the people involved on the editorial side, all our contributing editors, all our, you know, all the people I've brought in as to edit the magazine, be that as guest editors or the people who have now worked as editors, they've, they've all been writers themselves. So they're kind of very tuned into what writers are looking for from a magazine or want from a magazine. And what, what are the, you know, what are the stumbling blocks for writers? What are the opportunities that writers need? Uh, to help them and so you know that's that that informs what we do what we try to do well and you guys have had i think this is one of the things that distinguishes the stinging fly is the track record that you have finding good work by writers who go on to have big careers but you're getting them early you're locating that talent early you have a good eye for talent i'm I mean, some of this is just intuition. Some of it is being well-read and having good taste. 
Is there anything else you can point to? Because it's, I mean, it started with you, but it obviously it's branched out editorially through the years as the magazine has grown. What is the secret to finding this work? I guess part of it is the fact that they're sending it to you, but you also have to recognize, recognize it when you see it, right? Yeah. A big part of the impulse in setting up the magazine in the first place was to encourage short story writers because that's i mean that's what i was trying to write myself but also there was the fear that uh, and i've heard this spoken about by you know american writers too the fear that if there aren't outlets for the short story that it'll you know the, the, the writers will move away from the forum and it'll perish and, you know and that and like we have a great tradition of short story writing in in ireland and you know so i didn't want to see that happen so i mean a big part of it was to provide the opportunity for short story writers and then to have the magazine where you can see like we published a writer called danielle mclaughlin like the, her first encounter with the magazine was was submitting work to us and me saying no and then i think she said more work and i said um no but i'd like to see another story another or send me another couple of stories outside of the submission window and so she did and she sent two stories and um one of them i said we'll publish this and this was in 2011 i think and then a while later i heard from her and she said i've written another story but it's much longer than anything i've written before and i'm really proud of it but i think it's probably too long for you because it's five thousand words and i was you know, my reaction was, no, I mean, if this is the story you're really proud of, this is the story I want to read. So please do send this to me. And when I read that story, it was called a story called Night of the Silver Fox. I, yeah, I knew that we could publish a collection by Danielle if, if I got, you know, seven or eight more stories that were of a similar quality and had a similar impact on me. And that would probably be mostly an emotional impact. You know, so I that's the conversation I had with her, you know, write more of these longer stories, get on with it. So she did, and to, into, to that, like 2015, she published her book of stories with us, and then, but also it was published with Random House in, in the US. And between her sending me that story, that first longer story, and 2015, she'd also published two stories in the, in the New Yorker. So, you know, she was, <laughs> she was a talent. But it was like she, she, like over the lifetime of the magazine, I definitely like, and you know, she ha- wasn't writing when we set up the magazine, but like she probably started writing seriously for herself in maybe 2008, 2009, I would say. And then a couple of years later, she was in the magazine. And then three or four years later, she's in the New Yorker and she's publishing her first book. But a talent like that, when you see them, when you see them come through, I think it's it's fairly obvious that that a, a story from a person like that really stands out, and I think will always stand out. And then we're in the kind of like I'm in the privileged position or of being able to take a writer who comes through the magazine with a first story like that and and talk, start talking to them about a collection of stories. And like we have seen a number of our collections have come through the magazine in that way where and then it's been a kind of slow build up you know from that first story towards a collection over time where i'd be reading the work as they produce it and kind of yeah 
and that's that's been fantastic i mean a very enjoyable experience for me and uh, luckily enough i still get to do some of that you know hmm. and some of the other writers i mean sally rooney is a prominent one who published with you guys early in her career and has gone on to great things yeah. uh kevin barry like who are some other writers that people uh would know about who maybe got their start or published with you early on yeah so sally rooney sent us poems when she was in still in high school effectively but and then by the time we published them she had started in trinity college and then she published yeah so she published poems with us for a while and then we published colin barrish colin barrish would have been somebody who he's published two collections now with grove atlantic in the states but he would have started doing the creative writing masters in ucd and sending us work uh, and us working together towards the first collection after we published the first story by him. Uh, we published Claire Louise Bennett, who's published um, Pond and Checkout 19 with Riverhead in the US, I think. So yeah, people, sometimes the writers uh, that we publish in book form, they may not have an agent or, or they'll get an agent sometime after they appear in the magazine or around the time we publish a book by them and then it's great to see that they move on to international publishers after we publish them first and you know so like and we are essentially there to give them pe people that first opportunity uh, especially around short stories because and again this is changing somewhat in the UK and in Ireland in the sense that publishers have kind of shied away from publishing collections of stories uh, up until maybe the last four or five years where they're now appearing more regularly on, on the bigger publishers' lists as well. Um, as well as, you know, obviously debut novels are still gold dust. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's another function that the literary magazine performs yep. in addition to providing community for the writers. It is also a way for people in the industry yep. to locate talent. And yeah. to kind of scout yeah. talent, it's like, I'm going to use a sports analogy, an American sports analogy, but it's a kind of farm system. Like this is like a baseball, <laughs> but yeah. basically like, a, you know, a minor league team or like young talent coming up through the ranks. If you work in publishing in an editorial capacity and you're trying to find the next Sally Rooney or whatever, you keep an eye on the literary magazines that are yeah. doing it well and that have a good eye for talent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that is definitely happening with us. We get the last few years, we've noticed like agents will contact us about writers who appeared to, in the issue. Last year, we did an issue, a separate, uh, yeah, an issue that was going to be for all new writers. So everyone in, in the magazine or in that issue of the magazine was somebody we hadn't published before then. Uh, in in the previous twenty four years. So uh, and then so we have a good mix in that of people. Um, who um, were literally just starting out again, or or people who maybe would have been trying to, you know, have, had submitted work to us before, or maybe people who were discouraged about submitting work. And, you know, that's a, another big thing that I think that we'll, we, we certainly try to do is to kind of think about who is not submitting work to us or, you know, who might not be. Because, you know, there, there, is, there is one group of people who, you know, any opportunity that comes along, they're on it. And then there's the group of people, and some of them, the suspicion certainly that I would entertain is that some very talented writers have been knocked back for whatever reason. 
and may not be putting their work forward. And so we have to kind of try and make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're being as encouraging to them as we possibly can so that, you know, that, you know, that we stand a, ch a good chance of, of that they will submit work to us because they see that uh, the, the kind of the level of care that we, we, we give to this, you know? Well, and about like the function of having to reject writers yeah. who submit their work, you have, you have to have form letters when you're dealing with the volume that you're dealing with, yeah. but then as you've kind of alluded to so far, there are different tiers. There are writers who are in the maybe pile or writers whose work in which you sense like real possibility if they fix a few things or evolve a little yeah. bit more. So I'm just curious to know about handling that part of it, because I think from a writerly perspective, it can obviously be frustrating to submit your work and then hear nothing at all. That often happens. Is there a policy in place at the Stinging Fly where you you do respond to each and every person, but maybe with differing degrees of attention, depending on the quality well, of the it. work. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, like there have been times when we haven't been able to get back to everybody, or when I was just wasn't able to do it all. And you know, so certainly at different points early on, you know, it just was not possible for me to get back to everybody, and then too much time would have passed. And yeah, it was, and it was the. So I'm very glad that we kind of moved beyond that stage of our development. And, you know, there was a time when we weren't able to pay writers either, you know. But, yeah, so we do have, like, there would be, like, everybody would now get a response. And that that's obviously made so much easier. I mean, by using a platform like Submittable where, um, you know, it's it's part of the package that you can, you know, send out a response to everybody at different stages, and including the rejection letters. So it's easier, much easier to communicate with people on mass but definitely we'd have you know like people would now get a c communication like so there might be let's say a, a different email might go to anyone who featured in, in in the long list for the editor and that, that long list could be up to 120 stories of the 1500 or whatever that were read and then you know the top 60 or the, and then again the top 30 might get a different one and then you know and and because now, you know, we have an editor who whose job it is to edit the magazine and, the, you know, and, and my job and other people's job is to kind of, you know, to make sure everything else is in place so that they can just get on with doing that. It means that uh, Lisa is now in a position to, to spend more time, you know, with the rejection letters and with that process and also it might be a process of saying of you know asking to see another draft of something or working on an author over time you know to say well actually I, you know this needs work if you're willing to work with me on it uh, it might go in, into an issue next year not into this next issue we'll hold hold it back and we'll work a bit more on it together so you know i think we're definitely interested in investigating all the kind of thing, everything we can possibly do to help a writer in that way, you know. So and and yeah, I'm I'm very pleased at, at, by the fact that you know that we've gotten this far. That you know that it's not a case of you know having to send out blanket rejection letters or not even getting to do that at all because you have so much other stuff 
<laughs> Listen, I, I sort of deal with this, like as the host of this show in terms of getting yeah. pitched, you know, I get pitched a lot and it's, yeah. it's just me. And I think like when it comes to correspondence, when you're in that situation, there have to be systems in place. It's not simple yeah. like to develop those systems and to make sure that everybody's getting responded to and yeah. to manage the volume just day after day. It's like, it's too yeah. much, you know, at a certain point. So I can understand how it would take time. And yeah. a question I have as well, you know, on a related note, having read so many submissions through the years, having done this for what, almost three decades at this point, you must have a very finely tuned sense of the short story as a form and an understanding of what it is that makes a short story work. I don't know if it's something you can articulate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is intuitive and that you go by feel and emotion, but mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that the short story is a form that differs from the novel and it requires different things of a writer and not all writers have that skill set. They might be, you know, more suited for a longer form, but mm -hmm. for people listening, is there something or are there things that you can point to in short stories that tend to make them effective? Do you have any way of defining what it is that makes a good short story and a good short story writer? Mm, oh, <laughs> I wish I had the answer to this question. I mean, a while ago we started, um, we started doing a spreadsheet where we, um, we're logging the submissions. Uh, you know, this is even the one, like the ones as we read them, we were, logging them and we're kind of you know putting in kind of logging details like you know point of view location time frame just you know to get a sense of of what type of stories were coming in and then and and would that lead to us kind of having the, the answer to maybe this question of but it hasn't <laughs> it right. just has led to a, a very long kind of spreadsheet but uh, of, <laughs> of, of details about stories that came in but um so yeah it's like you just you really do just know when when you're reading it you know and it's but like i love the Amer the best american short story series and one of the things i love about that is i don't get i don't always get in each year but you know if I, actually when i'm whenever i visit america that's kind of one of the things i'll go looking for in a bookstore is, is older copies of that and from different years but and then you have a guest editor each year and they're, they're you know there's an introduction telling you about what what a short story what they love about short stories and um and, and what makes it a good short story um but i a few years ago elizabeth Trout did it and I th she had a lovely thing where it was she was talking about it's like getting a phone call in you know in the days when there wasn't caller id and it was you know that tentative thing of picking up the phone and not knowing who it was going to be and then and then if it was a, cer a certain if yes and depending on who it was you know you would I, you know it would be either i have to get off this phone really quickly you know i can't bear to talk to this person or it's just that your whole body relaxes and you go okay you know whatever this is going to be you know this person is going to just this is going to be a real treat to, to hear from this person and that's what it is like you know i think opening or picking up a story and reading the first couple of paragraphs is because as an editor, what you're doing, I think, is you're looking at, you're reading and you're going, what is this, you know, the, 
the questions are flying through your head as to what is this person trying to write about? Who you know? What's happening here? Uh, who who is this? What are they writing about? Who is this character? What are they doing now? Yeah, you know, but the good writer will just deliver and uh, and immediately. I think your body relaxes and you start to just read for pleasure or excitement or you know it's 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 the the questioning switches off and it's because I think as well when you're reading that amount of material what you're trying to do is find reasons to say no to something and so when the good stuff comes through it just it's just going hang on a minute yes <laughs> you know it's like forget about forget all your questions this is a story and you need to listen to this now and forget you know you need to forget everything else because you know i've written a story and here it is and that's the message you're getting as opposed to you know the kind of the frantic kind of reading and guess second guessing what is going on and so it's it's that feeling of the, this person is not in control of the material uh, that you get when you're reading the work that isn't going to make it into the magazine, whereas it's the 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 sheer relief and pleasure that comes when you know that this person is in control of their material, and they have produced the goods, and here it is, and you can you can definitely without you know, and you can do it with joy and excitement. You can pass this on to readers because they'll have you know, you hope that they will have the same experience. Yeah. Well, I think like, I love the, I love the, the point that you made about being in questioning mode yeah. when you're reading, trying to sort out what a writer is up to and yeah. how the hallmark of something that is really accomplished and really good and ready for the magazine is that that questioning just stops. Yeah. And I can relate. I think anybody who's in a position where they're reading a lot, I, I think anybody who loves to read a book loves reading something that really excites them and that is yeah. an absolute pleasure and that is totally absorbing. I like to think that for people like you and maybe for people like me who are constantly fielding books and reading, that the pleasure is maybe a little bit greater. <laughs> like the, the, the joy that you get when you're reading a book and it's not work. Yeah, Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like you just, it's like, you just relax into it and it's like, oh, this yeah. is a delight. I'm looking forward to finishing this. Like I'm not even yeah. looking at the clock or thinking about yeah. what else I have to do. And you know, that is a writer who is in command and it is really, really hard to define what exactly it is. I mean, that spreadsheet that, that, uh, that you, that whatever, the eternal spreadsheet that you developed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't, you can't really define it. You just know it when you, when you read it. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's also, I think, related to this idea that you mentioned earlier about wanting to find work that only the writer himself or herself could possibly have written yeah. something yeah. so individual, something so unique, something so connected to who this person fundamentally is. And that can take on all sorts of different shapes. And when it's rendered well, when the time and the effort have been expended in service yes. of the work, yeah, that's what it takes. And I want to know too, a little bit more about the way that you sustain this magazine financially. I think American listeners in particular, where funding for the arts is maybe not so robust or so friendly, might be amazed and perhaps a little bit 
despondent to learn that you guys do receive considerable funding from the Arts Council in Ireland. Is that correct? Yes, we do. Uh, We do now. Um, Yeah, so over time, that's built up um, quite a bit. And um, yeah, but that is subject, obviously, to, um, you know, what is happening generally in the economy and, and politically as well. But certainly over the last few years we're in a good place i think i think the arts council kind of recognize like at the beginning the arts council weren't sure about (laughs) what we were doing and uh you know it took a while for us to convince them that what we were doing was good and worthwhile uh but they did that did change at some point and so they've supported us consistently over time and then we had like the arts council itself would have been building up its the amount of funding it was getting as our the Irish economy grew during our the first ten years in the magazine, uh, and then the economy tanked like as the world economy did in around two thousand and eight two thousand and nine. Then there was a dip for a few years, and then it built up again, and then the Arts Council got more fun like arts funding went up during the pandemic because the government decided that arts funding was something that was worth investing in at that time. I mean, could and could make a difference, I suppose, maybe with people at home. And then also the number of people who are employed with the art within the arts to keep their jobs secure, I suppose. And yeah, to provide kind of entertainment and uh, comfort for people during lockdown, that the arts could deliver on that. Yeah, so I think like, so funding increased then as well. And then just like, the Stinging Fly as an organization has gone through the a process of, you know, incorporating as a company and we're seeking charitable status here, which will, you know, like, so I, I guess this means that um, it, it no longer relies on me to, um, for it, well, hopefully this means that it can continue if I decide to walk away from it, that there's a, you know, that there's, there's an organization now in place that, and it's not dependent on me. Uh, that will continue this work should I decide to put my feet up at some point uh, sure. in the next years. But uh, yeah, so that that's a great relief to me as well. But yeah, so the, but definitely there is more funding available. I mean, I remember I went to I visited Minnesota a few years ago, and uh, as things happened, a friend brought me along to a fundraiser that Milkweed were ha- running. Milkweed, the publishers there, and. I was kind of amazed by that because, you know, they were having an auction for, you know, lunch with a poet for $5,000 and uh, this type of thing. And, you know, but, and then I understood that they, you know, that they would do maybe one of these a year, the big dinners, and that's where they, that's what their annual funding was, basically, you know, whereas we have to fill in a lot of application forms. But it does deliver, it keeps us going and, you know, it's, uh, and it's allowed this thing fly now. So there's, um, there's myself working full-time, one other full-time person working on it who just started in the last month or so, uh, and then three part, part-time people. So it's, it, yeah, it's a good team of people now, which I think will probably develop a bit more over, over the next while. And we also get funding from the T.S. Eliot Foundation, which is also very gratefully received. Sure. Well, I mean, like in terms of just like the practical issue of being able to survive, being able to 
publish and distribute a magazine. Yeah. You're you're distributing it to physical bookstores and newsstands yeah. all around Ireland. So you have to have that sorted out. You're also paying your yeah. contributors and paying them yeah. pretty well, uh, like uh, yeah. according to the standards of literary magazines generally. Yeah, we've been able to do that too. Yeah, which is yeah, it's all it's all good. Yeah. So just in terms of keeping this thing afloat and keeping it profitable and moving forward, you have the funding from the government, which is what, a couple hundred thousand, I think I read in the New York Times piece, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year or something yeah, so like this that. Year we're getting 200,000 euro, which is uh, around that figure of dollars as well, but they're roughly equivalent. So our funding has increased probably, it's probably doubled over the last three to four years as we went through the process of becoming a company and so on. Okay. So there's the government funding, the T.S. Eliot Foundation. There is the subscribers who, you know, pay an annual fee to subscribe. And so that generates some revenue. Uh, Advertising. We don't No, see, I, I mean, I, I, it was so painful doing it for those first few issues that I just haven't gone back to it. I mean, it used to, yeah. I mean, now I suppose we could hire somebody in who would be like, you see people who are good at selling advertising and they're good at selling advertising. They can do it. I just can't. Um, but yeah, it would take me um, three days to try and build up the, you know, the courage to ask somebody to buy an ad. And then it'd take me three days to recover when they said no. Right. It take, you know, it's a lot of, it's a, it's a full-time job to do yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff, like to go out and try to hustle up ads and to talk to people and then to deliver on the ads, yeah. to coordinate the design, all that kind of stuff. It's a big sure. job. So uh, I'm just curious, like beyond the government funding and the foundation funding and the subscri- subscription revenue, is there anything I'm missing? Just so that listeners who might be wanting to start a magazine can get a sense of what the different channels are that they might want to pursue. Acknowledging, yeah, the fa- acknowledging the fact that in the United States, the government funding might not be as robust, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and from, like, but I think there's 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 a much bigger tradition of philanthropy in the states, which is something they're trying to encourage more and more here. But like from the early days, we had a kind of we had a patron scheme, which you know involved like people who wanted to support the magazine above and beyond taking an annual subscription, and they paid a small amount of money. So it's just an extra amount of money, but so that was certainly a good you know, a steady source of income that, you know, is still there. And I think, you know, it's probably something we'll develop some more in the next couple of years as well, because, you know, it it will help fund a lot of the additional work that we're doing now around writer development, the workshops that we run and the mentoring we provide and all of that. You know, it's, Oh, it's, wait, wait, wait. That's, that's right. Like in addition to the foundational support, the government support, the subscription revenue. You're also yeah. a publisher. You're yeah. publishing books, and then you're yeah. also running workshops and yeah. uh, doing mentoring. So that's got to generate yeah. revenue as well, right? Some of that generates revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mentoring is mostly we've we've provided that for free to people, but uh, to a small set of writers each year. But the workshops do kind of, you know will bring in some income and we run a summer school now which again during the pandemic we, we were running in-person workshops and then we switched those to online workshops and then post-pandemic we're doing both because you know we could see that you know there was a great demand into like 
both actually also around Ireland from people who didn't wouldn't be able to travel to Dublin for the workshops, but appreciated us doing them online as well. So yeah. Hmm. And the and the mentoring, just to like drill down a little bit more on this, like you guys will hand select authors who you feel are close. In a lot of cases, there are people who will have already published in the magazine, uh, but we're helping them kind of reach the next stage beyond that. So it's like whatever project that they happen to be working on, we'll pair them with another writer. And, um, and we were doing this on a kind of individual ad hoc basis with, you know, a, a writer occasionally here or there. Uh, but what we've started doing is putting that together as a, in a program and, um, you know, bringing the, a small group, four, four or five writers together and giving them some kind of group workshops as well as the individual mentoring that they get. I mean, so my colleague, Thomas Morris, I know has been mentioned on this podcast before when you were talking to Chetna Maru. Um, oh, right. So, I was going to mention uh, Chetna because she was mentored, wasn't she? Yeah, by... she, yeah she, well, she, she came to our summer school and then I think after that was mentored by Th- Thomas Morris. But that was, I think they arranged that separately from the work he, he wasn't working with us at that point other than as the workshop leader. But now he's come on board in the last couple of years. He's come back to us. <laughs> back, He's been subsumed back into the family and is now our editor at large. So he is, he is running our mentoring program now. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I love Chetna's book. That is a beautiful yeah, book. Yeah. What about like for people listening who might want to submit, but also people who might have an interest in starting their own magazine? I'd be interested to hear you talk about the editorial process when somebody gets a yes and what in general the editorial process entails at the stinging fly i i have to believe that it's lovely to get a story where you feel like it's almost all done (laughs) you know it's great and usually i think when a writer as we've talked about is in command of the work there usually isn't a ton to do but are there instances where the work is like 75% of the way there and the, in the editorial process, you get it the rest of the way. Like, what does it look like for somebody who gets a yes to work with you in an editorial capacity? Um, I would say that like, in my experience, most of the work that we published would probably be 80 to 90% there, uh, you know? And so it's, I would say, if if it's if it's any less than that, like if it's if it's sixty to seventy percent there, <laughs> I'd be saying to them, you know, I think you need to do another run at this yourself and come back to us with it. But 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 we could be very excited by work that we read that is sixty to seventy percent there, and but they, we would probably pass it back to the author to have another go at it. or. Or we'd have a conversation with them and see, you know, where they're where they are at in, in their thinking on the piece, and you know, if they have ideas about how they can develop it. Um, but uh, and and that might be a person who needs mentoring as well. But um, but then the eighty to ninety percent ready, and then I think that's going to be less about this story needs something some major work done it like we just need to you know do several rounds of line line edits on this and then 
and copy edits and proofreads and yeah. But um, I think yeah, it would be it would be just suggestions that we're making. I mean, that's certainly how I operate. You know, it would be at that stage you'd have a um, a Google Doc or a Word document that you are passing back and forth and with comments on them and, and queries on the text. And then it, it can also help to show the writer the text and layout because they you know their attitude might change to it once they see it and lay it as well. But generally it's you know, I think for the most part like we do occasionally get encounter a writer who says, I don't want to be edited and we've we've let a couple of right. I mean, it's very few, but like I'd say, possibly one hand I can count them all in the in twenty five years. But there have been those writers that, um, and a couple of you know, yeah, that we've had to let a story go because we, you know, they they just don't want to be edited. But for the most part, it's a process where we are making suggestions and they come back to us with responses, and you know, I feel like I. I I have a very light editorial touch, I would say myself, in terms of, you know, I don't want to turn the piece into something something that doesn't sound like this writer has written it. You know, I want to res- I want to tune in. I want first of all to tune into what the writer is is trying to do, and and then I'm kind of suggesting points where where I've been taken out of the story for whatever reason, and has the author considered this before uh, this you know this point that I've, I've made and sometimes it's like something that they that they're aware of that they tried to fix themselves or or maybe hope that they might get away with or 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 that they have been trying to fix it they couldn't figure it out but you know they've let it slide and so then we talk a bit about that and try and, and come up with something but you know I think I love line edits myself because it's just, it really is, I think, about that tuning into what the p- person is trying to do and, and following the sentence and, um, and, 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 you know, taking out any interference. You know, so I still get to do that when we're publishing books because that's what I'll be doing with the author if, if I'm publishing a collection by them. Well, you know, I, I, I want to ask a, a kind of, nuts another nuts and bolts question but i think it's so vital and it has to do with copy editing you know copy editing and making sure that the product that you're putting out isn't riddled with usage errors and you see this too much in book publishing yeah i feel like maybe copy editing has gotten short shrift in certain quarters and that bothers me. I'm wondering how you manage that. It's also something for me. You guys are at a stage now where you have funding and you you have probably have budget to have your issues properly copy edited. But especially yeah. for small presses, you know, small presses who are operating yeah. on a shoestring and are trying to auction off dinners with poets to pay for their yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah. pay for their books and everything. Copy editing can be pricey and yeah. it's obviously slow. It's not sexy work, right? To sit yeah. there and go through yeah. line and, by line. You know, so, and I find that when I'm doing, like, so I suppose what I'm doing is a mix between line editing and copy editing. And then we finally a proof reader come in at the very end. But you just have to go and you have to possibly read the story, you know, how many times you have to read it. But like, and each time you read it, you, you're going to notice something else new that, you know, you know, oh, okay, how did, how did, how did I miss that? And then the proofreader will will find things again. So 
it really does require you to go through that as as really as often as you can stomach and but like we'd be very forgiving as well of, of that those type of edits when you know or those errors or mistakes or typos or whatever when we're first reading the manuscript because they don't matter like that is what we will we know that we will have time to fix those over you know and we will give it the time and the effort to to get as many of those fixed up as possible but they still sink in or they still slip into an issue at the end of at the end of all that process and it's very very annoying yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you see them still there but uh, uh yeah, yeah. I know I've been there and I, uh, I know that writers have different approaches, you know, within their own work. Some writers like to use quotation marks for dialogue. Other writers don't. Some writers yeah. use commas in a kind of grammatically doctrinaire sense. Other writers prefer not to. Do you have a house style that you insist your writers adhere to? No, not, not, not a very... Not a very invasive one, if that's the right word. But uh, yeah, so we have a house, like we follow some house style. There are elements of house style that we follow, but it wouldn't it wouldn't demand that people use quotation marks if they've chosen not to. So you know we'd accept that, but it would it would if you are using quotation marks, they will be single quotation marks because that's what we use. That's what yeah. I prefer. But I mean, like America, <laughs> it's the devil. I'm just like, yeah, I don't even use them at all lately. But I, well, you know, we'll see. Yeah. But uh, what about this, uh, you know, the press that you run, the books that you publish? It sounds like it's an or- organic process typically where the magazine feeds the press, but can you just talk in a little bit more detail? Like what is the press? What's it called? How do people submit? How does that part of the business work? Um, so yes, it's called the Sting and Fly Press. Where did we come up with that name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it started in 2005, but it, it was very organic, that move, because we I noticed that there were writers coming through the magazine who, you know, again, it was like, it was the next brick wall that they were hitting was that it was hard for them to get a short story collection published, even though they, they'd, you know, they so a couple of people have been, you know, appearing in the magazine um, a few times, but there was nowhere to go for them next. And it was the reluctance at that time, generally about publishing collections of stories. So the way to resolve that was to set up a press that has mostly focused on collect- publishing collections of stories and has mostly been writers who came to us through the magazine. Yeah, so we don't have a submission process for it. It's like, you know, if somebody inquires about it, it would be, you know, have we seen your work in the magazine? Uh, have you sent your work to the magazine? That's where you start. And then, if you know, and I would take the view, I suppose, and certainly for the press, um, that, you know, anything we publish, uh, like so the individual stories in the collection all have to be of a standard that they um, would find a home in the magazine if we had room for all of them you know so uh that's kind of just how that operates it's so it's and it's been yeah it's been a lot of debut authors who've come through the magazine for the most part and then actually in the last couple of years it's changed a little bit in the sense that um like the book that we're publishing in next month is 
is a writer that we've published for the last 20 years, but we've started by publishing her poetry. Then she published a couple of collections of poetry, and then she went on, on to write a novel well, that was published here in Ireland about 10 or 12 years ago. But she then started writing short stories, and we published a few of those over the years. So now we're publishing what would be effectively her fourth book as an author, but um, it's her first book of stories. And we have, we've published a sec- two books of stories by an author, just because I love working with her. Wendy Erskine is her name. Uh, so it was a writer from Belfast who actually came and did one of our workshops uh, that we, we run a six month workshop as well. So she came and did that, was coming down from Belfast to Dublin doing a round trip every Monday evening for six months. And I got to read one of her stories and really liked it. It went into the magazine and I had the conversation with her, you know, more of these and there will be a book. And, you know, and there was. <laughs> and then That's the, the, the dreamed book. about conversation. More of these and there will be a book. That's what authors yeah. want to hear, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, if if there are people listening... Well, first of all, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think is vital that we should have covered? I feel like we got a pretty good overview of what you're up to, but if there's anything I missed, uh, feel free to to chime in. Like one of the things that we also kind of think a lot about is how when a writer is starting out that the you know, that they feel like that publishing is such a kind of d- the mysterious industry or dark arts of publishing or editing and but I suppose to understand that it's you know that it's mo- like I I listened to the episode you did with the agent the agent one hundred and one um a few a while back but you know that was great because one of the things we've been thinking about is when when an agent approaches us to talk to a, one of the writers in the magazine like what do we like should, what information do we give to the writer about agents like because the agent like. How does how does the writer know how to talk to an agent? <laughs> how do they know what questions to ask? Even though all the information is out there now on the internet, it's it still seems to be like people have a lot of there's a big block there in terms of people thinking that there's more to the industry than you know. There's, they think there's some secret code <laughs> that will gain them access, as opposed to. And maybe it's because the work itself is so hard and so lonely and so, you know, to get through. But that is the that that is the necessary part that has to be done. And I do think I think I think the writers writers who produce books somehow understand that that is a necessary part of the process, you know, they, and they get on with the work. Um and then they come looking for help. But what what you, I, so wait a minute, really just, want... just wait, just, just so I'm clear, you mean writers who end up producing good work, they get on with the process of just doing the work, of getting the yeah. writing yeah. done well, and they don't think yeah. so much about the business part of it until that work is done. Yeah, as well, well as yeah, or they done. know that the work has to get done, you know, and, and then that the business part will be, is of less, you know, those things will fall into place. Like, and I, you know, obviously some successful writers are very into the business and, and, and know a lot about it and, you know, and follow it in great detail. But, you know, you don't need to have that level of knowledge either. Um, but you do need to get the work done. 
um and that's first and foremost i think you know and and that's always the case and i think also writers need to empower themselves to know that if i do this work then i can make call make i will that will empower me that will i will be in a better position to call the shots because people will be coming looking for me and my work because i've given the work the time and the attention that it needs and people will recognize that but uh, the point i had been <laughs> trying to make was you know that for writers also to understand that you know the people involved in literary magazines are you know are and the people involved as working as agents and the people involved in publishing i think you know they're all they're all interested in in getting good new writing you know that's what we want first and foremost so that's why again that's why it's important to focus on the work but and then but we are there once you have the good work ready for we once that's there ready for us then you know i think this whole infrastructure is set up in order to kind of engage with the writer and with the work and bring that to readers well i have enjoyed talking with you i appreciate all of your time and all of your insight and this has been an enormously helpful conversation and i think it is important work that you're doing and it's important work that will need to continue to be done especially in support of the form of the short story poetry uh to keep these things going. Yeah, and I'd love to see people set up more magazines. I mean, I think definitely if you're in an area where, you know, there aren't, there aren't, a good, you know, isn't a good literary magazine already at work. Um, but also I think people, you know, people have set up magazines here in Dublin in, in kind of, in reaction to what we do as well, you know, or, you know, and then niches have started to kind of form as well. And, you know, so there's a kind of, and it becomes a much richer, more vibrant scene where, and then, you know, writers know that the different magazines are publishing different types of work. So it, it you know, it all helps. So even if it's, you know, there is a magazine, but it, it's only publishing a certain type of writer, writing or type of type of writer, well, then there's probably a place for another magazine to work alongside it as well, you know, so that's the exciting thing too. Well, Declan, I appreciate the time and I look forward to seeing whatever you guys come up with next or in the, in the, you know, the months and years ahead. And I wish you all the best with it. I don't know, I guess with the magazine, the, the publishing imprint, that's it. There's nothing else. You guys, you guys have a podcast. I mean, you guys have different, there's different tentacles <laughs> to yeah, this yeah, operation. Yeah, we have, we have, yeah, we have, uh, yeah. So a lot, like a lot of our activity has moved on, moved online as in, and also that we've had resort, you know, because we now have more resources, it means that we can, we started publishing additional stories online as well. Um, so original, like, new stories will appear on the website every month um, and they, they're not in the in the magazine and then we've been we've kind of added our whole archive from the first from you know from the, from the 25 years and um, like those very early issues we had to scan them to in order to you know make the to, to be able to have a digital archive of them but yeah so all of that is on the website as well now and yeah so publishing original work on there as well which we have again thomas morris is, is involved in, in kind of 
the work and we have a reviews editor as well. We moved our book reviews from within the magazine to online as well. So yeah, it's all, it's all changing as we go. Yeah. Whatever right. makes sense of time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, listen, I appreciate it. It's great to talk with you and to meet you and I wish you well. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. All right, folks, there we have it. That was my conversation with Declan Mead, founding editor and publisher of The Stinging Fly, now celebrating 25 years of existence. You can find The Stinging Fly on the internet at stingingfly.org. You can read their submission rules. You can get yourself a subscription. You can follow the magazine on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, that was Declan Mead, and the magazine is called the stinging fly the other people podcast is offered freely the entire archive is made available more than 830 episodes and counting at this point it's all available without a paywall so it's a listener supported show if you had a good experience if you like what i'm doing if you want to support this work and help me keep the show going you can support the show on patreon for as little as one dollar a month just go to patreon.com slash other ppl pod it's a sliding scale you can get merchandise, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for my free once a week email newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast, if it's possible to write a little review write a little review. It helps the show find new listeners. You can follow the other people show on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Finally, I have a novel out. My latest novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published a year ago. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook so if you want to read my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up on Wednesday, I believe my guest will be a young author named B. Seton, whose debut novel, Berlin, is out there now. It is excellent. It was just published here in the States a couple of weeks ago, and I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you soon. So... Stay tuned.